With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including e-books and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to this episode of New Books and Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund, and this is our World Cup edition of the podcast. The 2014 FIFA World Cup is underway in Brazil. Uh, we're still in the opening slate of the group stage matches as we're, co- we're recording this episode. And we're fortunate to have two guests on the podcast to talk with us about the history and culture of football in Brazil, as well as the broader region of Latin America. So first we have Joshua Nadel, who is a historian at North Carolina Central University. He's the author of the book Football, and that's football with an exclamation point, Why Soccer Matters in Latin America, which was released just a few weeks ago from the University Press of Florida. So Josh, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks so much, Bruce, for having me on. And also with us is Roger Kittleson, who is a professor of history at Williams College and he is author of the new book, The Country of Football, Soccer and the Making of Modern Brazil. And this is part of the new series, Sport in World History, published by the University of California Press. So, Roger, welcome to New Books and Sports. Great. Thanks, Bruce. Good to be with you and Josh. So to start, we usually hear a few words of introduction from our guests. I will say that uh, both Roger and Josh are specialists in Latin American studies who have years of experience living and working in the region. Uh, They both also have longstanding connections to soccer. So uh, I'll ask each of you to say a bit about your background uh, in Latin American studies and your interests in football. So Josh, why don't we start with you? Sure. Well, I guess my background in in Latin America goes to birth, I suppose. Uh, My mom is is from Argentina, which means I should be rooting for Argentina this World Cup, yet somehow I'm not. Um, And uh, and so that's sort of that's my my longstanding interest in the region has has sort of comes from that that history and and, uh, sort of growing up around people from Latin America who, you know, my mom was friends with, obviously. Um, And then my my interest in soccer also is is long standing i was uh you know i grew up as part of the generation i think the first generation of of american kids to to play soccer uh, so i started playing when i was about 6 um and i also sort of got fascinated in 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 sort of sport as a way to um to talk about society and social issues really early i think you know i i went to the 1994 world cup uh, a, a number of the games in in foxborough massachusetts right after graduating from from university and uh, and it was really struck then at, at sort of how soccer could sort of cut across a lot of different social divides um, and political divides. So that would be, I guess, my in in a in a brief nutshell. Mm-hmm. And Roger, uh, my my nutshell contains uh, Brazilian orthodontists and uh, American-based Jesuits. <laughs> uh, so if I it's much more it's much more interesting than mine. It's a little nut- well, I don't know if it's interesting, but. Uh, <laughs> My my father's best friend uh, um, at, from the University of Illinois, Chicago, is a Brazilian, and so we grew up with Uncle Carlos uh, and his whole family and lots of friends through him, and also a bunch of Brazilians who had uh, decided that the military dictatorship was a good time for them to leave the country for a while, um, and they, uh, many of them came to study uh, and or teach at Marquette University, where my, my dad also teaches. So I, I've been involved with Brazil uh, since I was a kid, 
you know, I, when I was in college, I was very involved in in, um, in Central American uh, politics of, of U.S. policy towards Central America. And eventually, sort of my politics and my longtime connection to Brazil collided, and I became a scholar of Brazil. And then while studying in Brazil in the early 90s, um, I was just fascinated by the way uh, that very mainstream people were talking about the national team and how uh, bad it was at the time and placing the blame for that on race, mostly by saying that the team had become too white. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was just something that I needed to explore at some point. (laughs) First, I had to get my dissertation done, but then I would come back to it. So you also mentioned in your your introduction that uh, you visited Pele in his apartment during one of these, these visits down to Brazil. How did, how did that happen? That was uh, one of these family friends who I, I had no idea he was that prominent, uh, but he, he was a judge and um, uh, very critical of, of the dictatorship, which is why he, I think why he kind of self-exiled up to Milwaukee, uh, which takes some doing. Uh, not many people <laughs> willing to uh, self-exile to Milwaukee. That is, that is exile, no, yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Definitely. But, uh, yeah, you know, my brother, I was spending uh, uh, the Brazilian winter, uh, so our summer, with one of my brothers, um, and we went to stay with these friends, and it was my birthday, and uh, one of the one of their kids who, you know, I had grown up with said, well, we need to do something special, and she had her dad call somebody who called somebody, and the next thing we knew, we were knocking on Pele's door in Copacabana, um, and, uh, he, he could not have been nicer. He was just, he spoke very good English, which was, which was handy at the time because I didn't <laughs> speak Portuguese and, uh, don't, don't remember anything that he said, except that he was really nice. And I couldn't believe that he gave us as much time as he did. Wow. 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 So I'm um, one degree of separation from Pele now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. I think that gets you a free subway sandwich now. <laughs> That's nothing to uh, nothing to shake a stick at, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Before we get started with your books, I, I know that both of you teach courses on uh, football in Latin America, and and your books have received a good amount of media attention. So so I'll ask each of you, since you deal with with students, you deal with uh, reporters, what is the biggest misconception that people have of soccer in Latin America? Josh, you want to handle that one? I, I was going to say you can handle that one first. Um, <laughs> the biggest. Well, I, I just think there are a lot of stereotypes uh, about Latin Americans in general that get really played up when people start talking about soccer, about you know the sort of violence and the sort of tropical passion that supposedly motivates you know Brazilians and other and other Latin Americans and you know makes them crazy when 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 there's anything having to do with soccer around. Um, and you know, when I listen to the commentary, uh, uh, of any soccer game, inevitably Brazil comes up, but it's, especially when it's internationals, like the, the current world cup, um, there, there's all, uh, all, a lot of language about the, the, the unique passion that the Brazilians have, or sometimes they, you know, generalize out a little bit to, to include other Latin Americans. And it, it's a sort of myth of, uh, of exceptionalism that, that I think is is fascinating as a historical construct, but you know, as a bit of political, uh, you know, uh, unrecognized, usually unrecognized political rhetoric, um, it's it's really annoying. Um, so, and yeah, I'll, 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 let me ask Roger first. This is something you talk about in the book that the Brazilians themselves perpetuate this notion of of Brazil as as an exceptional country when it comes to matters of football. Correct. Correct, and then it's it's. In fact, that kind of exceptionalism is not really in itself exceptional. Uh, the content is exceptional, <laughs> um, but it's it's part of their nationalism. And and what I wanted wanted to one of the things I wanted to to show in the book is you know how um, different narratives and uh, sort of identifications of of the nation get got constructed over the sort of long twentieth century, um, and. and how soccer was really not just a reflection of those kinds of discussions and debates, but really a core area in which those debates and discussions 
took place and it was you know really essential to to the whole that whole part of the cultural work of of uh of creating a nation mm-hmm. and I, I would add yeah sure i would add to sort of piggyback on what roger's saying about uh, about sort of the soccer as uh as construction as uh, constructive as opposed to reflective i mean i think that that sort of holds throughout the region certainly in argentina and uruguay and chile um you know you see um soccer very much involved discussions about soccer really um playing an, an incredible role in, in constructing, as, as Roger said, the identities of, of those countries. I mean, it's not just in Brazil. I think the, the question of misconception, um, I, I think that I would, I would agree completely on the passion issue. I, I think that, you know, it, there's this sort of assumption that all Latin Americans, not just Brazilians, are, are incredibly passionate about soccer. And that really sort of speaks to, I would say, sort of the racialist ideas, if you will, of, of the, of the 1800s where sort of, you know, Southern Europeans were supposed to be hot blooded. Um, and, and, and that transfers to Latin America, um, with, you know, with, uh, with immigration, uh, in the late 1900s or late 1800s, early 1900s. So I think there's, there's sort of that, right. The, the sense that Europeans are supposed to be rational and they don't, they, that the, the idea that somehow Europeans are less passionate about their soccer, uh, I think, is also a, a pretty big fallacy, um, right? I think, you know, you don't have to look far to see that, you know, if you want to look at sort of violence, whether it's in the stadiums or fan violence, that, that exists in Europe equally uh, equally virulently as it does in Latin America, if not more so. Um, and I think the other misconception is that, um, or another misconception, is that it's only certain countries um, you know, I, I think that, you know, like, for instance, Honduras, I don't think most people think of Honduras when they think of soccer. Um, and maybe yesterday's game against France is a, is a perfect example of why. But certainly Hondurans are um, are, are are incredibly uh, for, for Hondurans. Soccer is just as important as it is for for Brazilians. Um, right. It, it was sort of a formative element in their nationalism and national identity. And the chapter in your book, Josh, that uh, that strikes me along those lines is is on Mexico. That that you know we associate, you know, especially here in the in the states, we associate Mexico with soccer. But you point out it's it's really kind of a, a you have to scratch your head as to why soccer is presumably the national sport of of Mexico. One, they haven't been really that good at it. Right, um, right. I mean, I think going back, sort of, uh, you know, Mexico had. This moment um, up until the 1920s, really, where it was sort of a toss-up between baseball and, and soccer as, as to which was going to be the national sport and which was going to be the most popular sport. Um, actually, American football tried to get it inroads in, into Mexico in the 1890s and, and failed miserably. Um, Mexicans thought it was barbaric and and uh, and sort of disgusting. Um, but uh, but until the 20s, really, um, baseball was was a major player in Mexico as well. Um, and really what, what I think it happens is what, what I think happens is that, that soccer becomes the sport that the, the revolutionary leaders, uh, in Mexico in the, in, from 1910 to 1920, that they grab onto as the sport that, that can be or as an important sport, right? So, um, they, they, they have it played in military barracks. They challenge, uh, expatriates to soccer games when they take over certain territories um one of the one of the early presidents of mexico actually has a make sure that there are no import duties on sporting goods um, as ways to sort of reconstruct mexico after the revolution um it really it becomes a way to knit the country back together after the sort of this 10-year sort of violent cycle um that was the mexican revolution it, it works very similarly in in, in other cases uh, obviously and in, in one of the things that I like most about Josh's book is that you get this this very nice comparative uh, uh, side to things. Uh, in, <laughs> that's just one thing. Um, but um, you know, in in in, in Brazil, it, it it was very similar. And and one thing that I would just add is that it it, it really had the the uh, advantage uh, of of you know pitting nations against each other. 
uh, you know, the whole uh, uh, Orwellian uh, image of soccer as uh, uh, war minus the shooting. Um, it goes a little too far, but um, but it is true. I mean, there are other, obviously, you know, Mexico and Argentina and all these other countries had other uh, um, cultural um, forms that were, were, were key in, 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 you know, creating more inclusive nations in, in the early 20th centuries, particularly in the 20s and 30s. Uh, and then moving uh, into the the the, the 40s, um, but soccer was one that really it, it seemed a, a a very handy measure of of an, each nation's progress because they played each other, and if one one you know was victorious in a soccer game, it seemed or could be read as a signal of some kind of supremacy. Certainly, uh, you know that you could see that with the, with the Argentine case, where they they were uh, along with the Uruguayans, they were the major powers in in the Americas. But the Argentines kind of pulled out of international competition for a while, and it seems, you know, and Josh, you know more about this than I do, but it seems in part that was out of a fear of not doing as well as they thought they should. Sure, I mean, I think that's that's exactly right. Um, you know, they sort of sent. I don't want to get too detailed about it, but the Argentine Federation was in such disarray that they couldn't figure out who they would send. And yeah. a lot of Argentine players were beginning to go out overseas to play. I mean, you know, the, the, the 1934, right, exactly. The 1934 yeah. Italian World Cup winning team is basically, you know, two of the or three of the star players were, were Oriundi, right, were these sort of uh, Argentine and Brazilians who went to uh, who went to Italy um were lured there by sort of professionalism. Um, and then also uh, a little bit later, a lot of Argentines started going to Colombia to play um, because they could get paid more. Uh, and so Argentina was definitely worried about about that. And I think in Uruguay, you know, Uruguay is a great example because Uruguay is this tiny little country that, you know, for years had been sort of pushed around by either Argentina or Brazil. And then in soccer suddenly was able to sort of come out onto stage on its own. Um, you know, it did this both in, in South America, winning the, the first South American championship in 1916, but then also internationally, um, you know, the in the Olympics in 1924, um, you know, apocryphal or not, they say that the the, uh, the Uruguayan flag was flown upside down um, when when they went out to, uh, to the stadium the first time. Um, and... Um, you know, Uruguay wins the Olympics um, against all these European teams. And, and, of course, Europe is the model of progress, as Roger was sort of describing. You know, if you, if you want to say soccer success can be a measure of national success, you know, in this case, um, everyone assumed Europe would just trounce any team from Latin America because uh, Europe was the pinnacle of development. Um, and so when, when Uruguay wins in 1924, um, it becomes just soccer really sort of cements itself as this as this symbol of the nation, right? Um, there's this journalist who who writes something like this little spot on the map. What was before a little spot on the map is now growing larger, larger, larger. You know, he sort of says that the soccer team is the fatherland. It's it's really powerful stuff. Connecting to this, so thinking about uh, soccer as as part of the the nation building process in Latin America, something that uh, for those of us le- like myself who are not knowledgeable about Latin American history, something that we miss is that this region, like North America, was a region of of immigrants, and that you have people coming from Europe from other parts of the world in the late nineteenth, early twentieth century. And I want to ask about this of how immigration throughout the region plays into soccer's development. Yeah, um, in Argentina, Brazil, and Uruguay, really, you know, the the populations of those three countries um, get major influxes of of immigrants. Um, I think Argentina takes roughly 4 million immigrants, largely from Italy and uh, and Spain. Um, Uruguay takes fewer, but but it has actually a a larger impact on the population overall, um, just because Uruguay was such a small country. but for for Argentina, um, sort of the the influx of immigrants um, makes for a pretty volatile political situation, um, and 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 national leaders sort of realize pretty quickly that there's a need to incorporate people into the nation uh, in one way, shape, or form. And soccer and and soccer really becomes one of the ways that this happens. Right? Um, there's sort of the the definition of the Argentine style of soccer. Um, 
is one that is uh, is sort of inherently linked to to notions of Latinness, right? To notions of of being from Southern Europe, um, and this happens at roughly the same time that that sort of immigrants are gaining new political rights as well. So there's there's sort of this there's sort of this link that um, that you have between immigration and and soccer, right? Not only that there are immigrant teams, um, so teams from that are based in Italian neighborhoods or based in German neighborhoods, but also that there's the sense that in order to make something specifically Argentine, um, in order to integrate these new immigrants and make them into Argentine citizens, um, they need to play soccer. And so a new style of soccer is defined that, that incorporates these supposedly Latin traits of, um, of guile, of spontaneity, of, uh, of sort of individual one-on-one play, a certain irrationality, right, that, that separates Argentine, Latin Argentines from Anglo-Argentines and, and the sort of the Anglo-Saxon world, which is rational and, and ordered. Um, so, you know, for the Criollo style, as it's called, um, it sort of starts getting defined in the 19-teens, you know, the, the key skills are those skills that theoretically come from the, the Latin blood, right, either from native Argentines or from Spaniards or, or Italians coming over. And I'm sure that Brazil has, I know that Brazil has a similar sort of thing and I'm going to let Roger take that one. <laughs> it's, it's similar though. Um, in Brazil, um, the other the European immigrants who, who come in, uh, you know, are largely uh, Italian, Portuguese, uh, but also German and then, and then Japanese. Um, and they, they are also, you know, coming in, they, they come in in large waves uh, in, in the 20th century. Um, but they are kind of lumped with the much larger part of the population that's of Af- African descent. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, you know, the image and the, the national style that emerges, you know, that helps bring the, the, the nation together under uh, a unifying identity is, is, uh, is that of the Afro-Brazilian. Um, so the traits that are um, sort of plucked out and, uh, you know, identified as, as defining the national style um, which are, you know, described in the, in beginning in the thirties by different journalists and scholars, um, as, are, are really Afro-Brazilian, um, in all kinds of stereotypical ways. They're very patronizingly, uh, presented, um, but they are, they're inclusion, inclusive. And, and that, that in itself is, 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 is new. And, um, you know, they're, they're, it, this is also part of uh, of the, the creation of uh, the the myth of, of Brazil as a, as a racial democracy, sure, uh, sure. a mixed mixed race nation, and that's again not something that's uh, unique uh, to Brazil. It happens in Brazil in a specific way, but other things that you know, similar to it help happen elsewhere uh, in the region. And it is, you know, people Afri- people of African descent were not fooled at the time; they knew that they were facing <laughs> discrimination, um, right? At the same time, they were willing to, you know, sort of tacitly at least buy into this these, this notion of a racial democracy and and uh, uh, you know a, a national culture that was you know Afro Brazilian, um, at least for a while because it did it, it could be an ideal, uh, maybe something that they could you know grab onto and 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 turn a little bit into their favor at some point. What fascinates me, if I could just um, say, is, is that the styles that were defined as Afro-Brazilian, right, or the, the traits that were defined yeah. as Afro-Brazilian were essentially the same traits that were defined as Latin, Argentine, or Uruguayan, right? I mean, it's spontaneity, it's guile, it's sort of, it's this ability to sort of, to move on the fly, it's artistry. I think maybe in, in the case of Brazil, there's a little bit more sort of sort of recourse to, to things like dance and, and yeah. jinga, right, swing. But right. it's still, it's a very similar, like the mentality of the play is yeah. very similar. Um, and I, I find that to be very interesting given, given you know, who's creating these, these, um, these types, I guess, or these, you know, these, 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 these images and, and, and uh, ideals. Well, Roger, thinking of, of this, uh, the, the Afro-Brazilian element to the national style, 
this isn't something, as you said, it's, it's, um, this notion is created uh, in the early 20th century, but it's not something that's accepted throughout the 20th century. It has its ups and downs, correct? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It, it is something that, that um, because, you know, there, there was real discrimination and because the mostly white uh, elite um, didn't, you know, look favorably on, on, on the, the general populace, which was, you know, mostly poor, mostly people of African descent or African uh, indigenous descent. Um, that was, it was, it was a tough sell. Um, what, one of the things that I, that I found fascinating um, when I was kind of pushed by my editors who, you know, farther back in time, and I'm, I'm glad they pushed me because I, I found a lot of really interesting stuff, uh, but was how far back, some of the reaction against that notion of Brazil as Afro-Brazilian and of, of, of the national style as this, you know, uh, futebol arte, the, the, the art soccer, because um, it really, it's there in the, in the 50s. It's just kind of an, an undercurrent. Um, it's quite strong, still an undercurrent uh, in the 60s, um, particularly in reaction to Brazil's loss in the 1966 World Cup. Um, but then in the 1970s, you know, virtually as, you know, within a year of Brazil winning uh, the 1970 World Cup, you know, in this glorious fashion and this TV, uh, this uh, World Cup that was shown on, in, on color TV, and it was, you know, which was an amazing spectacle. Um, and they won it in grand style, um, you know. And by 1971, uh, you know, under this military regime, um, the, the authorities who, you know, who ran um, Brazilian uh, soccer, um, I, I hesitate to call them organizers because uh, journalists <laughs> at the time kept re re often referring to <laughs> right. disorganizers of, of the national game because they, they, were, they were just terrible at setting a schedule or you know, anything basic like that. But anyway, they were, they were really trying to retool the national style and make it more European. And it, it's, it, it really had unmistakable racial tones to, to it, this, this new project, this kind of what I call a scientific revolution uh, in soccer. Um, so yeah, it, the, the devotion or, or embrace of, of the Afro-Brazilian really comes and goes. And in the seventies, it goes. Josh, let me ask you about the contributions of players of African descent, because you talk about this in the case of Honduras and, and you admit at the start of that chapter that, that this is a somewhat surprising choice, but, uh, I'll ask, what, what did you find in that case? Well, I mean, I think the case of Honduras, you know, for me, for me, I guess it wasn't so much the contributions of players of African descent in Honduras, although uh, they are incredibly important. I mean, the, the, from the first time, uh, from the first international match that that uh, Honduras plays, the team is um, about 50 percent Afro-Honduran, um, which is it's pretty surprising given the time. Right. Uh, if you if you think about that, that was 1921, that first international match. Um, and if you think about where Brazil was in terms of, of, of sort of accepting players of African descent at that time, or where, you know, Argentina or, or, or Uruguay was, um, Uruguay had players of African descent on the team, but they were. And I should, um, and I should ask too, what, what percentage were Afro-Hondurans in the overall uh, population? It was a small, small percentage, right? Right. So this is, this is, this is sort of the, the, the point of that chapter really is, is more about sort of shedding a light on the fact that Afro-Hondurans exist to a large extent. Um, the, the, the percentage of the population now is officially uh, 2%, although most people um, would say, most people, most people, uh, objectively, it's probably more like 10%. Um, in 1921, it would have been pretty hard to tell because um, I believe that um, in 1916, um, any reference to to blackness to African heritage had been taken off of the census. Um, so this is sort of part of the part of the chapter is the way that the that that sort of soccer or the way that uh, race is is deconstructed and reconstructed in Honduras to sort of write out the black population. So I think that what for me what's what what was fascinating about doing the research in that chapter and and, and writing it was really to sort of uncover this. Um, this this history of Afro Honduras, which is really uh, it's 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 not there, and the only time you really would think about Afro Honduran 
population, uh, I think, is when you look at the soccer team, uh, which is, again, uh, about 50 percent of, of African descent. Um, and, and, you know, the, the main players in, in 1982, when, um, when Honduras last made the, well, when Honduras made the World Cup prior to 2010, the last time was 1982, the main players were, were Garifuna, were, uh, members of an ethnic group, an Afro, Afri- African descended ethnic group from the North Coast, um, who sort of descend from, um, descend from exiles or deportees from the wars from wars against the, the British and the French in the 1700s. Um, so, you know, it, what, what for me it, it says is that, you know, soccer gives us this window uh, to look at different aspects of society that we wouldn't necessarily think of as, as, uh, as pertinent, right? Um, Afro-Honduran society um, is, is there. It's, pretty vi- it's a vibrant culture, uh, vibrant culturally, um, but also, you know, really suppressed uh, nationally. Uh, and you can see that, I mean, even into, into 2006, 2007, um, members of the national setup, uh, you know, uh, staff from the national setup were saying, you know, that there should be f- fewer players of African descent on the team because they didn't have the mental capacity to play. Um, and it's really, you know, it's sort of shocking to be hearing that, um, maybe not given Do- Donald Sterling's recent comments, but uh, it should be shocking to hear, <laughs> hear stuff like that uh, coming from, you know, anyone at this point in time. Um, so I think uh, Honduran's I, I, what it does for Hondurans seeing the national team, it does sort of open people's eyes externally, I think, um, you know, externally being outside of the country um, to the fact that this, this population is there. And I think internally it also, you know, I would love to think that it could go a long way towards uh, towards creating some sense of, um, of interracial uh, understanding, but, but I'm not sure that it does fully, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. I want to ask about uh, a term that's come up uh, already in the interview with the, with a number of your answers, and that's modernity. And uh, so even even with the embrace in different nations in the region of, of a national style that was set against European styles of playing, um, you did have this notion of, of soccer as a marker of, of the nation's or the region's uh, modernity. So uh, can I ask about that? I'll, and Roger, I'll start with you in the case of Brazil. How is, how is soccer presented as a, as a sign of, of modern Brazil? Uh, it, 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 it changes. Um, it is uh, the, the, the part of uh, the aspect in which it, it presents Brazil with the chance to prove itself against, uh, against other countries and especially against European countries, idealized European countries, I should say, uh, is always there. And that that's, that's still there. Um, so, you know, the Brazilians want to beat the Argentines more than anybody, but, you know, they also want to show that they're, you know, as, as, as good or better than, um, uh, than, than the Europeans. But early on it's, uh, it is, uh, Soccer is very much uh, identified with the sort of gentlemanly, you know, amateur, purely white kind of uh, elite um, uh, sports uh, culture of of England in particular. Um, By certainly the 80s and and more clearly uh, in in recent times, uh, it's about, um, you know, projecting the nation as a, a player in this sort of neoliberal, neo-globalistic, uh, globalized world, um, which is a very, it, it, in some ways, it's not that different. It's still about competing on an inter- international level, um, but it is um, putting Brazil uh, um, a little bit uh, up there as, as, a, uh, as, as less distinctive in some ways. Um, and in some ways, uh, the image of Brazil's mixed race nation, uh, fades, um, certainly by the, uh, the early nineties. Um, and it becomes more of a, uh, more of a kind of rainbow nation where there are, you know, multiple, uh, ethnic and racial identities seen as, um, as separate and key parts of the nation, but you know, they're less, it's less about their mixture and more about their all being there together uh, as part of this nation. And in some ways, what happens as, you know, Brazil enters the late 80s, early 90s, 
um, and this this latest uh, uh, wave of uh, globalization um, is you know the the national identity uh, also changes. Um, you know, on the soccer field, things become a lot more pragmatic. So the old debates over strength versus art, the sort of um, more white European style versus the more um, Afro-descendant uh, artful style, those kind of fade. And uh, I think part of what's going on there is, you know, Brazil's, you know, the dominant notion of Brazil's is, is changing uh, as well. Um, and becoming a little less about the mixing of peoples uh, and more about the sort of uh, integration of different sorts of Brazilians. Um, so some recognition of difference. And, and I think also, I mean, it strikes me as you, as you were saying that, Roger, that the other thing that happens is that it's, it becomes more accepted that Brazil is, in fact, a modern developed nation, right? It's like right. it is a brick nation, right? It, is, yeah. it defines the brick nation. So there's no need anymore to sort of prove itself on that on, as, as that, right? right. Um, that sort of concern goes out the window, although sort of perhaps uh, somewhat ironically, this, this World Cup is exposing um, the other side of that equation, right? Um, it, it may be exposing that to be something of a myth that, that Brazil is as developed and as, as, uh, as sort of modern as we think. But to go back, I mean, I think, Bruce, the, um, the funny thing is, if you, if you look at the World Cups that were hosted in Latin America, um, you know, 1930, 1950, 62, 70, 86, right? Am I missing any? Yeah. Uh, that we, you know, in the, in the era that, that they were, um, that you had sort of this, this, you know, the, the, the gentleman's agreement that one World Cup would be in Europe, one would be in, 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 in the Americas. Um, you know, every single one of those World Cups was supposed to highlight the modernity of the, the modern, the, the, the modernity of the country that hosted it. So 1930, uh, Uruguay sort of used it to present itself as a modern nation. And, and Uruguay, you could say, actually, you know, was at that point, uh, it, it had sort of created this, this proto type of a welfare state uh, going back to the early 1900s. Um, you know, it had er, very early an eight-hour workday, workman's compensation, uh, you know, insurance, all sorts of things that, that, that sort of workers elsewhere in the world had to fight for for a long time were all put in place by the state uh, very early in, in the first decade of the 1900s um, in Uruguay. So Uruguay in 1930 is supposed to highlight how Uruguay is a, a modern nation. Um, Brazil, 1950, supposed to highlight, you know, the modernity and development of Brazil. Chile, 1962, the same thing. 1970 in Mexico, I mean, Mexico, you could say 1968, the Olympics, 1970, the World Cup. And then again, 1986, the World Cup. All of these were, again, supposed to say, you know, Mexico has arrived on the stage as a modern developed nation. Um, it's, it's, and, and, and in 2014, I think Brazil was supposed to, you know, this was supposed to highlight again, that Brazil had come of age, right? Um, that it was going to prove it as opposed to show it, right? Um, but I think that there is an element of, of so, so soccer can be used to sort of talk about the state becoming modern, uh, as, as Roger was discussing in the case of Brazil, uh, and as sort of these, these, the rhetorical flourish around the World Cups in Latin America sort of show. Um, but at the same time, the, 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 the country actually becoming modern helps soccer grow. Um, so there's, there's sort of a symbiotic relationship there. Um, you know, soccer grows in, in, uh, in Argentina and Uruguay and Brazil as railway lines spread out from the cities, right. And, and open up new territory. Um, they grow as, um, as cities develop um, and as more and more workers come into the city uh, to work in, in factories, um, and in, in these sort of growing city centers. So, so you have sort of this, it's not only that, that soccer is used to represent the country as modern, but that, that modern life actually helps make, uh, make the sport and grow the sport. Um, I mean, from the, from the very beginnings, most of the, the English people who brought the sport were actually there to help build railway lines or to help with the banking sector, to help develop sort of the, the infrastructure that leads to sort of export-led growth um, that, that Latin America sort of 
was based on in the early 20th century. So I think that it's important to keep the, that, that symbiosis in mind. And part of, if, if I may, you know, just follow up, and part of what we see going on uh, in Brazil, and certainly since the, the, the protests that, that you know, uh, really picked up around the uh, Confederations Cup last year, I think they've been revealing and at the same time kind of constructive of the state of Brazilian modernity um, in, in these recent times, which is, you know, we're, we're seeing that there there is a lot more democratic stability in, in Brazil than probably at any other point in the, the, the country's history, um, an active uh, civic uh, culture, but also a lot of problems uh, with a very unequal uh, and unjust kind of, uh, you know, economic modernization that the country's had for, for quite a while. Um, but that it's really um, producing a larger middle class without producing um, the kinds of jobs and and other opportunities that you know will f- that could fulfill their their expectations. So one of the the really striking things about the protests that 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 start that broke out last year um, that I end my book with um, was that it was they were really about all sorts of issues. Um, there's just so many complaints, uh, just complaints. I must, uh, let me just be clear. Right. <laughs> uh, but also, you know, people, dis- protesters disagreeing with each other. It was, it was really lively and dynamic and exciting. And a lot of them, a lot of the people who were taking to the streets, uh, you know, millions of people, a lot of them were not the desperately poor. They were, a lot of them were middle class. A lot of them were sort of from this generation who were seen as being, previously seen as being pretty apolitical in, in Brazil. Um, but, you know, the, given this stage for protest and given all of the mismanagement and top-down anti-democratic, you know, style of, of preparation that had created that stage, um, it was, it, it just, it politicized people, um, and, and including, you know, the, the middle class, which is always, in, in, in Latin America, you know, held to be, alleged to be apolitical. Let me ask, since we're on the subject of the protests in Brazil, um, and I'll throw this to both of you, uh, do, do you think the protests will bring any uh, any significant change in Brazil? And then let me add on, do you think it will bring any change to FIFA? <laughs> I take that as a no. <laughs> um, well, I think I'll let. I mean, Roger certainly has got his finger on the pulse of Brazil more than I do. Um, but uh, but but I'll do Brazil. Uh, if you do FIFA. I'll, I'll do FIFA. Do you want to okay. go first? Sure. Or should I go first? You go. You go. You go. Okay. Um, I think. I think that FIFA is experiencing a bit of a, you know, hopefully anyway, a bit of a perfect storm right now, right? Um, it, the, the protests that shook the Confederations Cup, I think, really took them out, uh, took them by surprise. Um, I think, you know, that coming on the heels of, of all sorts of questions. I mean, going back to, you know, the choice of, of West German of West Germany. Um, it's not 1972. It's not 1974, rather, uh, of, of Germany as the choice for 2006, um, you know, where there was sort of suspect, suspicion that, that somebody had changed their vote at the last minute to vote for Germany. Um, I mean, since then, anyway, the issue of corruption has been on the table. And now it's just come out in such just so starkly, uh, for lack of a better way to put it. Um, the head of the local organizing committee from Brazil, uh, the former head of the local organizing committee for Brazil, who happened to have been Joao Havelange's, uh, the former head of FIFA's son-in-law, who happened to also be the head of the, the Brazilian Soccer Federation, uh, resigned uh, for taking bribes when it was finally proven that he had taken bribes from um, from a defunct uh, sports marketing company. Um, you know, there's revelations that the 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 head of uh, Conmebol who's also on the executive committee of FIFA, you know, was asking for uh, to be knighted in order to vote for England's, uh, in, in order to vote for England's uh, uh, bid for the World Cup. Um, so I think that, and and sort of coupled with, and, and also there's, you know, FIFA has this internal uh, investigation going on. And now, you know, uh, with Jack Warner's resignation, sort of all of this, all of these things are coming to a head right now, just as there's, 
you know, in, in the last two years, just as the Confederations Cup and the World Cup are going on, I think there's a spotlight on FIFA that it's going to make it really hard for it not to do something. Um, now, I don't think they're going to, I don't think they're going to reform in the way that they really should reform, um, you know, which would be sort of complete transparency, um, you know, some form of democracy within the, within the, the organization as well. Um, I don't think that that's going to happen, but I do think that you're going to see some changes. I think there will be moves towards transparency. I think Sepp Blatter is probably going to win the election uh, to, to, for, for another term, but I think that he's going to be um, forced to make some changes. And, and after he leaves, you know, there, there will be many more. So I think, you know, I, I don't think that we're talking about immediate things, but I think in 15 or 20 years, FIFA is going to look very different than it looks today. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that assessment. I, I think, you know, if we look a little more narrowly at, at Brazil, um, you know, this is uh, a different kind of perfect storm in that the, <laughs> the, um, the Confederations Cup last year and the World Cup this year and the Summer Olympics in Rio and in 2016. Uh, and this fall, there are also uh, uh, elections. And, and, you know, the, the polls are up and down. And I, I think there's a there's a distinct chance that um, the PT um, might lose uh, these elections. Um, Brazilian friends of mine and, and, uh, and journalists I read as well, you know, say that, you know, speculate this might come down to how well Brazil does in, in the World Cup. And, uh, I, think, I think that's a, a little silly, but I think um, the PT has put a lot of pressure on itself Um you know, by grabbing onto this chance to the host of the World Cup, um, but also by doing it in a way that makes clear that they are not uh, as different um, a, a political force as as they they used to be, and as they still present themselves as being. Uh, when they were um, a, a political rising as a political power um, out of the New Labour movement. Um, in, in the 1970s, uh, they, they, it became a political party. Uh, Lula was one of the founders. Um, and then, you know, by the 90s, they were ruling at, at uh, municipal and, and state levels. And they, they ruled in a way that really did seem distinct um, with a tremendous amount uh, of, of, uh, of transparency um, with things that sound terribly boring. And every time I start telling my students about them, they, <laughs> It's kind of glaze over until <laughs> until they actually see what this involved. But things like participa- per- particip- participatory budgeting, uh, which you know doesn't sound that exciting. But you know when a a, 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 a mayor in in Porto Alegre in the south of Brazil would present to the public um, the budget and and designate the you know show which part could go to the different neighborhoods and then each neighborhood could vote on what they wanted to do with their money. Um, That was, that was a pretty, pretty radical thing for them to do radically democratic. Um, And it was because they were, um, they, they dropped their, their more radical or conventionally radical language um, the, the pro-socialist, especially, and highlighted this this uh, adherence to to democracy, to formal democracy, but also a more di- direct kind of democracy um, than uh, Brazil had had before. Um, that won them support not only from the left, but then increasingly from uh, the center. And then once they were in power, and they were sh- they showed that they were more than willing to work with business interests, they, they actually got some support on the right. Um, there has been talk in Brazil uh, in the last six months or so, some, some serious concerns that um, the level of protests, you know, protests got smaller um, after the Confederations Cup. They also got more violent. Um, that this might spur the the military to get interested in possibly re-entering um, uh, political life in a more direct way. I, I, I don't think Brazil's quite there yet. I hope to be, um, I hope, hope that's not the case. <laughs> I, right. 
Um, but um, but I do think that you know the the PT has shown that you know it's it, it it's not as different um, as 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 it wanted to be, and its commitment to direct democracy, which had been disappointing already, has certainly been more than that. I mean, kind of horrifying in 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 the build up to the World Cup. Well, we're almost out of time, guys. So uh, I won't ask for predictions, but Josh, I want to ask if you're not rooting for Argentina, who are you rooting for? Well, I <laughs> um, somehow, um, so, uh, and, and I think it's through the researching of this book. No, I, I think that my, my, um, my sort of, my, my favorite team, my, for some reason, I have a soft spot in my heart for Mexico. Um, and, you know, this team that, that, that sort of constantly underachieves, uh, I feel like. Um, and, and so I'm, I'm sort of pulling for them. Um, I pull for all Latin American teams, basically, um, you know. It, it, to beat the Europeans. Um, and then from there, you know, we'll see. But, but if I had to choose one winner, uh, who, and, they, and they won't win, I'll also make that very clear, it would be Mexico. And Roger, I, I was just reading today that there are some Brazilians who are hoping Brazil doesn't win. Would, would you be included in that group? Or are you hoping for Brazil to, uh, you know, we've all heard the story that they can uh, erase 1950 with, with a win this year. Yeah, they 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 can't really do that. That the 1950s always going to be right. And and I, I, hope, I hope that El, uh, the 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 Uruguayan who scored the the winning goal for them, I'll see these Gigia who's still who's in Brazil now. Uh, I hope he's he's old. I hope he's around to to to, to watch that ghost um, for a long long time. Uh, no, they, I, I I I'm absolutely a Brazil fan, um, and for as for all the problems that I, I see in in uh, the way the team is run, and you know, uh, and so on, um, absolutely. I, and I, I do tend to root for Latin American teams, except for Argentina. So, uh, but so I, I'm rooting for Brazil, um, and then I have a series of teams. I hope do well. Um, I hope Ivory Coast does well. Um, and some of the actually some of the European teams now that they have so many. Um, uh, first or second generation immigrants, and have, have they've they've changed. You know, you you look at you look at the the Swiss side, and it's it's suddenly interesting. It's interesting to look at. The guys are interesting. The way they play is interesting. Um, so uh, yeah, mo- mostly for Latin Americans, except for Argentina and uh, and uh, a couple other teams around the world. You've been listening to an interview with Joshua Nadel, author of the book Football. Why Soccer Matters in Latin America, published this year by University Press of Florida, and with Roger Kittleson, author of The Country of Football, Soccer and the Making of Modern Brazil, published by the University of California Press. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications, on subjects like religion, politics, and history. If you like what you heard here, please follow New Books and Sports on Twitter at New Books Sports, or friend us on Facebook at facebook.com slash newbooksandsports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thanks for listening, and enjoy your week.